Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 403. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 403 you're listening to. My guest today is archival engineer Catherine Veracalli, making her second appearance on the show. Her first appearance, episode 35, that was August 17th of 2015. Yeah, so a number of years have passed. Things have changed for Catherine, and we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about her work now at Infrasonic in Nashville, where she is doing archival work, as I mentioned there in the intro. And she is doing work for Third Man, Oh Boy Records, Sun Records, and various artists. A whole new ballgame. Because if you remember from episode 35, Catherine was living in Phoenix and she was running a studio out of a house with multiple rooms and different engineers. And now she's in Nashville and she is archiving stuff. And it's super cool. So we're going to talk all about it. And I'm happy that she's back here on the show, especially after so many years. So Catherine Veracoli coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends, and let's read a letter. Okay, so I got this message from somebody. I'm not going to name who it is, but I've been given permission to read it, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. Hi, Matt. I'm living in a small town and running a studio. Uh, Business is so-so, and sometimes I think I should leave and move to a bigger city to pursue my recording dreams and get bigger clientele, or maybe even grow my knowledge by going to recording school. Uh, I'm not married, I don't have any kids, and I'm in my mid-20s. What would you do if you were me? Ooh, okay, so this is the opinion of somebody who is not in their mid-20s and can look back and kind of examine my decisions and try to apply it to the situation and also just take what I know now. So, boy, that's a that's an interesting conundrum there. Okay, so you're in your mid-20s and you're living in a small town. Yes, you could always move to a bigger town. The pros are there's going to be much more activity there. There's going to be much more recording happening there. The cons are it's very expensive and it can be a little tough to get started. So if you're willing to keep a super low overhead, eat kind of bad and see what's possible, you know, moving to a big town can be an exciting thing and it can be a very eye-opening thing. It can be a growing experience. I moved from a small town in Southern New Mexico to San Francisco right out of high school and it was the best thing I ever did. And yeah, it was tough. And financially, things didn't go my way for quite a long time. And eventually, I kind of figured it out. I would say if you're going to move to a bigger city, move to one where there is a pretty good recording infrastructure or, or music business infrastructure, if that's what you're pursuing, like Nashville, like Los Angeles. Uh, I would not move to San Francisco in this case because we do not have the same infrastructure that Los Angeles and Nashville have regarding when it comes to, you know, music and recording. On the topic of recording school, I'd say if you're running a small studio right now, you know, I don't know if I would 
take the time to go to recording school. I think I would dive in head first. You move to the big city, try to get an internship, try to become a runner, get yourself a part-time job so you can survive. Uh, it's going to be tough, but I think it's a detour in this case for you to go to recording school. You're running a studio and maybe you're not doing a great job of it, but you know, quite honestly, you could take what you've learned doing that and then you know, move to say Los Angeles, work at a studio and learn even more in a, in a much faster amount of time. I think that going to school is going to slow the whole thing down for you. And I think that as much of a struggle as it's going to be, I think that that's the best way to learn is to struggle a bit, especially if you're in your mid twenties and you don't have any kids and you're not married, you have no responsibility except to yourself. This is the time to make mistakes. This is the time to get out of your comfort zones and try new things. You know, try living in a place you've never lived before. And you know, if if some people might say, oh, Los Angeles, that's just way too much for me. You know, I get it. Okay, so move to Nashville. You know, that's a little more easygoing in some respects, but they take recording and music just as seriously as they do in Los Angeles. So you can't just go and be lazy. You got to get out there and bust your rear to do this. And you have to realize that you're not the only one that has this idea of moving and, and trying to be in the world of recording. So knowing what I know now and, and looking back at my past, I think that if I were to change one thing, knowing what I know now, I would have moved to Los Angeles and I would have dug in and worked my career from that perspective. Let's look at past WCA guests. Matt Wallace did it. Of course, Matt got a little success before he left. So did Eric Valentine. But Matt and Eric both came from the Bay Area. Sylvia Massey, I think, came from the Bay Area and moved down to Los Angeles. So, yeah, but they weren't coming from small towns. They were coming from, you know, pretty good-sized towns and just moving to a bigger town. So let's recap. Move out of the small town, dive in, try to make it work. And hey, worst case, you can always go back to your small town and go back to your studio and take what you've learned and try things differently. Also, remember that everybody's attention is on social media and the cell phone. So if you decide you're going to stick it out in your small hometown at your small studio, I'm assuming it's small, remember, you're going to have to get savvy with marketing and social media for your studio. That's where everybody's attention's at. And I know there's going to be a lot of people out there going to say, hey, you always poo-poo social media. I do because I don't like to spend too much time on it, but I use it as an active tool for marketing. And I think if you're a studio owner, whether you're in a small town or not, you've got to do the same. So that's that. But once again, move to the bigger town, try that. And if it doesn't work out, you can always move back. You know, it becomes harder if you become my age in your fifties and you think, oh, I think I'm going to move to a bigger town now. My first choice is you move out of your small town, close up shop at your studio or let somebody take over it while you're gone. Try Los Angeles or Nashville for two years or Austin or London, wherever you are. I don't even know if you're in the United States. But either way, I think you should dive in and take a chance. So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet. 
easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US, and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Catherine Varicoli here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Catherine, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be back. You just told me it has been seven years, almost to the day that I was here last. To the day that we're recording this. Yeah, really funny. Episode 35, it was in 2015. You were living in Phoenix. You had your studio in the house. And yep. that's all changed. Yeah, well, everything's changed. I mean, everything's changed for everybody, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it has. I mean, there are things about 513 that I miss. I mean, I miss the staff and I miss the returning clients that we had. And I miss having that that space that was part of that community. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think toward the end of the life of 513, it kind of started to feel like it was time to, to do something different. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, I was getting a little burnout with, Dealing with bands, I think that all tracking engineers <laughs> or studio <laughs> studio owners <laughs> probably hit that point at, at some point. And, you know, I just, I, I really held out, I think, a lot for that community and didn't really see it moving in a positive direction, not to like 
sort of crap all over Phoenix for any any reason. I mean, Phoenix is is great. It's my home and it's full of all the people I love. But, you know, it was it was time. It was time to move on. I was ready to do something different. Dominic, my house engineer, who's a lovely, awesome guy, still mixing and tracking in, in Portland, Oregon, which is great. He was ready to move on and it was just the right time. And then COVID. And then COVID. And then COVID. Yeah. And my wife now, which is weird to say, Piper Payne. Former guest, WCA former guest, guest. Uh, like a couple times. Yeah. Who's way, way more famous than me, if fame is even a thing in this industry. <laughs> um, she was uh, already out here in Nashville doing some stuff, working for Infrasonic, and it just kind of made sense for us both to be here. The idea was in place, but it happened really, really fast when, when COVID hit because it was kind of like, cool, we need to isolate. Let's move as fast as possible. So we, we kind of moved all of the studio stuff and all the house stuff at the same time, which was a huge to do. And we did it in the height of the pandemic in 2020, literally with a giant trailer, 20-foot air-conditioned trailer mm. and tent like camping. We basically camped the entire way and the entire way back. So there was no hotels. There was like very few public restrooms. It was <laughs> insane. It was not how I would have wanted to do it, but looking back on it, it was actually kind of a lot of fun, but a lot of work. Holy crap. There wasn't a lot of people on the road then, were there? Not so much. I mean, there was people on the road. Yeah. But I mean, I wasn't going to hire a moving crew. You know, like what I should have done is hire a staff, come in, get all the gear packed up, do all the stuff. Dominic, bless his heart, was quarantined basically in the studio. I was in Nashville. I was in Nashville when COVID hit. So I was more or less stuck here. If that's, I don't know if stuck's the right word, but you know, I was here. Oh, so the the trip across the country, was that taking place as COVID was taking hold of us all? Right at the height of it. It was oh. like, it was right after everybody started getting really freaked out. And then it was like, cool, we don't have any, there's like no vaccine. There's like nothing to protect anybody. So yeah, I think it was October. It was that first winter, I want to say in 2020, when we actually did the move. Mm -hmm. But funny enough, we did it twice because we also moved all of Piper's stuff from the Bay. Right, right. So yeah, we did two huge studio moves and a house move at the height of the pandemic, basically with a tent on top of a Tacoma. Yeah, that's. I'm sure crazy. that was uh, <laughs> no no tension there. Oh, we're great. We had a great time. Did it you? Lovely. Okay. Yeah, we really did. We travel really, really well together. But you know, we, I don't know, you kind of learned that long distance thing. Her being in the dip Bay and me being in Phoenix for like the first three and a half years. We did a lot of that. I have some logistical things to ask you. So sure. Did you sell the house? I did. So I sold the house and the studio at the same time, obviously, because they were one and the same. And I, I found a really, really awesome real estate sort of agency that deals with like weird shit, basically. <laughs> like, oh, you have, oh, you've got like a tennis court in your living room or people that just have like a golf course or somebody who did something crazy with their house or, or has a weird property. And they were awesome. My real estate agent was awesome. She was also part of the music scene. So she knew about the studio and it was a really good time to sell because when COVID hit, the real estate market lost its mind because the demand was still there, but there were no houses because everybody was quarantined. So everybody took their houses off the market. 
But we ended up selling it to a local label in Phoenix hmm. that's kind of co-owned by a band there. So it was a good sell. I mean, it went to somebody who was going to use it as a studio. We left some of the big stuff. We left the baby grand piano and a few other things, which was great for me because there was no way in the middle of a pandemic, I was moving a fucking, a fucking piano all the way across the country. So yeah, we sold the house. I did sell some of the, some of the gear that I knew I wasn't going to be using here in Nashville. And it was kind of like, let's just do it. It was quick. I put the house up with the studio. I think it sold 10 days later. Oh, wow. I mean, it went into contract 10 to 14 days later, which was crazy because we couldn't show it. I mean, that was another thing. Like Dominic was still running sessions and we couldn't show the house because I'm not giving somebody keys to a place that's got a million dollars worth of gear sitting in it. That's stupid. So it was, we had to schedule the showings. Dominic had to be there for all of them. You know, my real estate agent was like, well, this isn't really the way we do it. And I was like, sorry, this is the way we're going to do it. Cause I wasn't even there. Yeah. So you came from living in Phoenix, recording bands, and juxtapose that to what's going on today as I speak to you. You're in Nashville and you're doing what? I'm archiving. I am just archiving, which is a crazy shift, but also something super awesome that I always wanted to get into. I've always loved the analog side of things. I've always loved working with tape, working with media, and it was kind of a natural shift. I had a ton of decks already that I'd held on to because I didn't want to get rid of them. I had this really cool opportunity open up here in Nashville at Infrasonic with Pete Lyman and Reed Shippen. They actually had an opportunity to get into the archiving side of things, which just made a ton of sense for Infrasonic. It pushes business into the mastering side. It pushes business into the remixing side for Reed. So they had an opportunity to work with some folks that were already kind of doing that stuff. And they knew I was here and they were like, Hey, we hear you want to do some archiving stuff. Mm. Why don't we start an archiving business and and you can just run it. It was like, okay, sure. You know, I jumped into it, which was terrifying because the archiving that I'd done previous to that or tape transfers that I'd done previous to that were the things I would get here and there. I mean, it was a service we provided at 513, but it wasn't like our bread and butter. And I knew how to use the decks that I had. I knew how to bake tapes, sort of. I had like a just enough information to do it well without fucking up somebody's asset or with a lot of liability. And it was a really steep learning curve. I went from that to like, okay, here's a bunch of work coming in from like third man. Oh, wow. So it was like, okay, cool. I need a crash course. So it was a lot of reading a lot of watching stuff, a lot of really wonderful folks in the archiving community already who I was close to, who are so wonderful and helpful. And that's another thing too, that at some point in this conversation, we should chat about how different the archiving community is that I've found from the tracking and and mixing community. But Jessica Thompson, who you know, Oh yeah. Who's sort of just kind of around the corner down the street from you, brilliant mastering engineer, archival engineer, restoration engineer. She was so lovely when I asked her if I could come up there and sort of sit in on some tapes that she was running for our Huli, which is a label that does a lot of folk stuff, a lot of field recording, some blues. 
So I sat in with her for a couple of months and just watched to see how she was doing things, asked all the questions, learned a bunch of stuff. And this was like right before the period that I got offered this gig with Infrasonic. Oh, good timing. It was great timing, but I definitely felt when I got going like, shit, this is a lot of stuff that I need to learn. And I, I'm still learning every day. I mean, if we're not learning, then what are we doing right so it was, a, it was a pretty steep learning curve. But a great advantage to joining up with Infrasonic because Pete and Reed are already established in Nashville. So the right. workload would probably be a faster ramp up had right. you done it independently. Right, right. And you know, that's like a whole nother conversation too with working for a company doing this kind of work and working independently. Archiving in general, there's digitization or if it's if it's just part of the mastering process there's not really much of a budget for your run of the mill client let's say you know you've got a band who's been established for a bit who wants to reissue something that's on half inch that's the only place they have the the masters so they reach out to their mastering engineer because essentially the mixes are already done they just need to re remaster it and reissue it or cut it for vinyl or whatever it is they're doing and that archival part of it, the transferring part of it just sort of becomes part of the gig for the mastering engineer. So that's part of the mastering budget. But, you know, if you pull it out of that and sort of make it its own entity, which honestly is the best way to do it, you know, if you've got somebody who is just specifically tuned into getting the best possible transfer of that, whatever that media is, and not burdening the mastering engineer with that. You know, that somebody that's got all the tools, all the decks, everything that's ready to go, like that's all they do. It's tough to find the money. It's not so much that it's tough to find the work, but it's tough to find the money in the work, if that makes any sense. Right. You know what I mean? And then if you've got a big archive, which is what we all love, because it's work that we know that's coming in, for instance, you have an estate, somebody dies, something gets moved, something gets bought, and there's 200, 300 assets, 400 assets of either like a label or, again, like somebody's estate. To try to hold on to that as a small entity is really difficult because you have to store it. Usually that stuff goes to Iron Mountain, goes to like a larger sort of facility. And then the quality control, unfortunately, doesn't always stay. Right. In the transfer process. So yeah, I think with Pete and Reed, it was a great opportunity, not so much because they would have all this work ready to go, but more that they have those contacts. They have those clients that they've been working with for a long time. And when inevitably that work comes in, there's a place for it to go that they can benefit from. And, you know, they, those guys are wonderful guys. I mean, they really want to support their friends people that they care about. And they basically created a position for me here in Nashville. It's weird when you move from another city to a place like Nashville. I mean, Phoenix, the Phoenix music scene and the Phoenix recording scene, of which there is none, you move to arguably the largest recording hub in the United States, right? I was like, well, what am I going to do? I don't really want to make records in Nashville. Kind of over that. I don't even know how to make records in Nashville. <laughs> it's like a totally different game. I sat in on a session once with session musicians on the Nashville, what is it, the union schedule, mm -hmm. right? And session musicians brought in for an artist who had had some songs already written. And it was at an established studio with folks that I knew, cool cats. 
And I'd never seen a session like that in my life. I mean, it was like musicians were in, two, three takes, done, writing everything out, communicating in their own language. It was like bam, 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 in and out in like five seconds. And then it's like editing, overdubs, done. Four hours. It was like, holy shit. Yeah. This is nuts. I mean, it's awesome. It is just so far removed from how we ever made records back home. I mean, our process was, I mean, obviously we weren't dealing with the same type of musicianship, but like our process was like super slow, creative, you know, not to say that Nashville is not creative, but my introduction to making records in Nashville to make my long spiel short was a hard no. It was like, nope, definitely not into this vibe. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was a really, really weird thing. That was just one session. But at the end of the day, I didn't really want to make records. I didn't want to like manage the studio. I had a couple offers to manage a few studios, some cool ones, but I was like, ah, I did that. I did that for most of my adult life. I don't really want to do that. I want to do something different. I wasn't really sure what that was. I wanted, basically wanted just to fuck with tape machines all day long. <laughs> and that's, that's what you ended up doing. And that's what I ended up doing. And I'm super thankful to the guys at Infrasonic for sort of creating that position for me. I mean, how cool is that? That is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a huge value add to Infrasonic because as you say, it helps facilitate more mastering, more remixing. And, it does. And you can have that done in-house and not farm it out and have to wait or... Right. Well, I mean, it's it does a few things. One, you're able to control the quality control process from top to bottom. And Infrasonic, there's a lot of reissues that come through Infrasonic. There's a lot of, you know, we've got Dave Gardner who does mostly reissue work. His stuff is incredible. We just brought on John Baldwin, who's one of my favorite mastering engineers on the planet. Awesome guy. He's been in Nashville forever and he does a ton of reissue work. He just recently did all of the remastering for the reissues for Nancy Sinatra. He does a lot of stuff for Light in the Attic. So it's great because essentially Infrasonic can offer a client from like literal medium to press a reissue top to bottom. We can do the archival work. We can do the transfer work. We can do the mastering work. We can do the cutting work. And that's pretty cool. And another thing too is I think it brings a little more visibility to archiving, like audio restoration, audio preservation that's outside of academia. That's an interesting statement. Yeah. So much of it is in academia and it's, it's fantastic that it's in academia, but you know, when you think about archiving in academia, it's just like, it's pretty mundane. You know, it's a mundane thought to have. Do you think the approach is different? Like, I mean, if you're working at the library of Congress or you're working at Infrasonic, is there something that's more musical about how, how you do it? Or do you treat it the same? Like what, what's the difference there? I don't know that more musical would, would be the best way to describe it because obviously, you know, we're working with mediums that have hard limits, right? Like tapes need to be baked. This particular formula has these issues. It needs to be transferred at the speed that it's at with the tones that's on it. Everything needs to be adjusted. It's very mathematical and, and mechanical on that end. Right. So whether I'm working in academia and I'm transferring 200 hours of radio broadcasts or oral history or anything like that, the process isn't any different than getting a master reel from Sun and transferring that 
that's like something musical. It's the same. But I think the difference is that we're able to have that connection with the client. And if it's not with the client, it's with an estate. Because we're working outside of academia, we're getting mostly music, obviously. We're not doing that much oral history. I'm not doing that much oral history. Although I do love oral history. It's awesome. But there's a, a lot of hand-holding in making records in general, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Whether it's unspoken or it's really obvious, we're therapists. And when it comes to an asset or a group of assets or an estate or an entire archive of somebody who it's either their material or it's their father's material or their grandfather's material or somebody in their family or something. Mm -hmm. It's dear to them and it's priceless. It exists no other place except for on those 200 reels of two inch or those 100 or 50 reels of half inch two track, or maybe it's mono acetate that was discovered in somebody's attic. I mean, it's, it's priceless stuff. So there's a lot of education that has to happen between the archiving and that client to make them comfortable because we're essentially taking those assets. It's not a university. It's not like Harvard buys all this stuff or has all this stuff and you can trust Harvard because they're Harvard. You know what I mean? I think when I ask about the musical aspect, I guess what in my mind, I see it differently because, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. However, there's an extra advantage in that, like, let's say you're doing a restoration of some multi-tracks and Reed's going to remix it. Sure. You can document in the notes things that you identify as problems that somebody in academia would not have a clue about. Like, you know, hey, exactly. Reed, the kick drum is missing here and there and everywhere. Yeah. I do a lot more masters than I do multis for remix, mm-hmm. although that does happen here and there. So there is a lot of that back and forth stuff with Pete or with Dave Gardner, a lot with Dave Gardner, because Dave and I have worked together on some like really old sun acetates and some really old, old stuff from that collection. And, you know, they had their own EQ curve. Yeah. So I have to do my best to match that. I mean, if it's mono, I have to adjust azimuth by ear and I have to bounce that off of what Dave is going to want to try to recreate that or, or remaster that to the specification that he's either being asked to or that he feels is correct. So there is a lot of very personal stuff. So if I'm transferring something for Dave, I kind of know where I need to sit with it or for John or for Pete. And it's great too, because again, you know, I grew up in Phoenix in the nineties, basically hating grunge music. So listening to all those depressing 80s bands like The Smiths and The Cure. I mean, I grew up on rock and weird shit and I don't know anything about country music, which is funny because here I am in Nashville transferring some some pretty cool old historical country. So I have to ask those guys what it is they're looking for because I don't know the history of it. But it is it is cool to, to have all of that in-house. It, it just streamlines the process. And again, it's, it's that quality control from top to bottom. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. It's a very different mindset. I mean, everything, like everything about your life now is a completely different mindset. It's totally different. You came from a different part of the country. You know, you have a wife now, you have a house, you're doing a completely different task than you used to do for years. And so it's got to be a little bit of an adjustment, especially during COVID, (laughs) as you're sealed in together. Was it difficult to get settled? I'm sure that everybody you know there helped ease that, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because I think that COVID was the sort of great equalizer to that adjustment, if that makes sense. When COVID hit and we shut 513 down and we moved everything. I mean, that was like the biggest 180. I mean, I lived in Phoenix 35 years. I mean, my whole life. And it was like, well, it's COVID. Like, this is our life now. Let's make the most of it. So I think the adjustment was more like, we're all in this together and we just got to figure it out. And if it makes the most sense to do it this way, that's how we're going to do it. So I, I think it was... I mean, yeah, it was definitely a, a, a transition and getting settled was difficult because again, mostly because of the learning curve. It was like, okay, you think you know a lot about a tape machine because you've been using it your whole life and then you get into archiving and you realize you only know like 65% of the information that you need to do this job well. And then you need experience. So that means you have to jump in and work on some shit that scares you, scares the shit out of you. And hopefully you don't fuck it up. (laughs) You don't fuck it up. And the client's happy. And then you learn from that. You're learning. For me, I was learning on the fly in the beginning, on the fly with assets that were major assets, 
for big labels and big clients. Some I can talk about, some I can't. That was the adjustment. You know, it wasn't so much like getting settled in the new space and moving all of the fucking tape machines down the stairs, which is a huge <laughs> pain in the like, God, if I have to move one more 24 track, two inch down a flight of stairs outside, the transition was a lot more mental. And I don't want to use the word emotional. Maybe I should. We're talking about emotions in audio now, right? Sure. So I think it was like just crossing over that bridge of like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. If I don't just do it, I'm never going to learn and I'm never going to enjoy doing the thing I want to do. So like that was the adjustment, I think. Plus there was a level of pressure because you're dealing in such, oh, yeah, you know, assets that are worth, basically they're worth a lot of money because they're assets. Yeah. To a label, to an estate. Yeah. I mean, they're priceless. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, when, I think when I was tracking and making records, there was that level of stress that was kind of constant. It was like, okay, band's coming in, got to make sure everything's working. You know, just the general level of, of stress that you have going into a session mm -hmm. and then seeing a project through and making sure the staff is happy and the clients are happy and all that stuff and that the gear is working. And it's kind of always, it's kind of like just, just this steady stress. It's not too much. It's not too little, but it's sort of steady once you get into it for that many years. Archiving is like no stress at all, super high, super high stress for like a few days and then no stress at all and then super high stress. So it's like this roller coaster because, yeah, I mean, the asset's priceless. It's priceless. And as much as you'll tell somebody, you know, and there's obviously like forms that need to be signed and things that need to be agreed to that says like we're not liable for your tape that you kept in a swamp for 30 years that has enough mold on it to like start its own ecosystem. But yeah, it's, it, it is super stressful because especially if it's an asset that you know, or that is like meaningful or historic musically, mm -hmm. and there's only one of them or like there's a backup and that's it. And that's the one you're working with. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. You've got the pressure with the actual medium. Like, okay, there's all these things that the medium is liable to do. We could have stretching, we could have shedding, we could have sticking, we could have all these things, tapes splitting, splices that aren't, that are falling apart, things just falling apart in your hands. So you've got like all these things that even if you do everything right, the media is the media. And sometimes it's just not going to go your way. That's just, especially with, with 90s stuff like dats. Oh, I was going to say, that's- A dats. I, and I it's was like, just going to bring it up. We can get into that too. A lot of it, we have this stupid little saying in archiving that's like, sometimes it's like hit play and pray. And that's, sometimes that's what it's like. So, you know, you have the stress of the physical asset and then you have the client who has most of the time, absolutely no idea what you have to do or what goes into getting that particular thing off of that media into Pro Tools or into... You know, I mean, isn't that seem to always be the case? Client it has is. no clue what kind of hoops you have to jump through. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. I mean, just not to dwell on the DAT thing for too long, but I'm I'm curious. No, like, we when should. You, when you transfer a DAT, do you have the cover off the DAT machine just so you can monitor what is exactly going always. on? Well, I don't have the cover off when I'm playing it because you have those helical. I think that's how you pronounce it. Helical. 
helical, helical scan. Yeah. Yes. Helical scan heads. I'm one of those people that like knows what it is, but can't spell it or pronounce it properly. Drives my wife nuts. So, you know, same with ADATs. The cover, the screws are never in because every time I do a batch, that cover is off. I, I'm cleaning those heads and they have to be cleaned a very specific way with specific shit or you're going to fuck up that deck and you can might as well trash it because it's trashed. So yeah, it's off. But then when I'm actually running the tape, it's on so that I don't get any dust on there. Those helical heads, it's like one little tiny speck of dust in the wrong spot and it's going to error. Like it's either not going to play or you're going to have an issue with the tape. And you know, the, the funny thing is, is that it's the same technology in a VCR, essentially. Essentially. And I have been back and forth to my family who lives in Southern New Mexico over the years. And even this past summer, I came across some tapes and there happened to be a, yes, my parents still have in some side bedroom, a TV VCR combo. I don't know why, but I popped it, you pop a tape in and it's like, boom, it works. And because VHS tapes are awesome, Matt, that's why. <laughs> so, you know, why the ADATs and the DATs and the DA88s fail, I don't know. Well, they fail because it was a pro consumer decade, right? Like pro audio had hit the point where you didn't have to spend $20,000 for a tape deck or this amount of money for this or this amount of money for that. You could get something that was relatively pro-consumer for a couple of grand. That was the height of the technology. I mean, 16-bit 44.1 was like, oh my God, no noise. It's, it's crazy how everyone's trying to put noise back into music now. They spent so much fucking time in the 80s and 90s trying to take it out. And it was like, no, no tape hiss, like... Oh man, this is amazing. And then it's just because it was pro consumer, it exploded. And then the technology did not have enough time to not suck before it turned into something else. I mean, it was like we had ADATs, then we had D88s, then we had, you know, going through the whole CD period where we had the Sony 1630s. I don't fuck with them because they're literally error every other tape they're awful but that's why cds are 16441 because of that fucking protocol that was in every mastering house it was like the newest biggest thing it's same thing with like digital tape machines like da dash and prodigy prodigy specifically 32 track 48 that shit well be 32 on prodigy was the sound of 90s country i mean there's so many dash and prodigy tapes out there Mm -hmm. And there's the two tracks as well, which are actually like nine tracks of all kinds of crazy digital information. And good luck finding a fucking deck that's going to play those back. I mean, we have, you know, in our little archival community of people, there are some, but techs don't know how to fix those. The technology was never, it didn't go through enough fuck ups and fixes to get to the point where it is now. Well, if you think about it, I mean, analog tape technology, if I know my history right, and if you are a historian listening to this, please correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that if you go back to World War II, when the Allies went in, they were always puzzled as to how Hitler was able to do so many speeches in so many different parts of the country. Well, they went in and they discovered these tape machines, brought those back, got Ampex involved, 
And we took that technology, tape technology has been around since World War II. And then right. multi-track recording, if you think about it, has been in existence since Les Paul created right. it. And maybe on a more commercial scale, it's been around, let's say, 35, 40 years, or at least a minimum. I don't know the dates, but let's say... It's about right. The 70s, yeah. the 80s, and the 90s. You had 30 right. years at least, probably more, for that technology to mature, develop, and take a foothold so we knew, right. knew how to get the kinks out. But all that other shit we just been talking no. about, short-term no. short life. Short-term. The decks were not supposed to last that long. The media was not supposed to last that long. Period. That, so it's like a double whammy, right? You get an analog tape, and if it hasn't been completely trashed, and I mean like somebody didn't try very hard to destroy it through weather or storage mishaps, I can play that tape. I mean, I might need like a week fucking clean it and bake the shit out of it. But at the end of the day, the chances of me being able to play that tape and getting something, something off the tape are pretty high. You know, Steve Rosenthal said the exact same thing. Pretty high. So, and that is a test to the medium. And that is why probably we're still running tape decks in studios. Yeah. I mean, this is a rumor. And somebody told me this, this story, but the Church of Scientology records all of their shit to tape because it will forever be able to be played back. They also tried to find somebody who would build them a future-proof tape machine to which they needed an explanation as to why rubber is not future-proof ever. So that would not be an, uh, <laughs> a situation that would make sense. But tape is going to be around forever. But... We are hitting that wall with the degradation too of, of media. And we'll get into that too, in, maybe in a second. But yeah, with the 90s stuff, you know, with hard drives, like you think that that fucking cool hard drive you just bought yesterday is going to play back in 20 years from now and be able to recover any of that information. The technology, when it gets to that size, when it's digital, moves incredibly fast. And it's hard to have any kind of, forever life in any of that, like longevity in any of it, if that makes any, I don't know if those are the right words. Yeah. I guess I would argue that, I mean, I've had some fairly recent successes with 10, 15, 20 year old Pro Tools sessions that I was able sure. to, now that said, the medium at which, which they were stored was people were migrating it to the next hard drive. So the session itself stood the test of time. Sure. But they had to keep moving. Well, that's something that somebody cared for. Right. Period. I mean, it was cared for. Whether it was cared for through generations of drives or it was cared for through proper storage of tape, I mean, that is half the battle. Period. And it's same with decks. Were they cared for? Were they aligned? Were they kept out of dust? Those types of things. But back to the 90s formats, and this is a conversation that we have a lot when we get together as nerdy archival engineers, which, you know, we have Zoom meetings. There's a group of us that have Zoom meetings because we're all sort of in our little closets or our little basements working and oh, all by sure. ourselves. AA, right? Uh, yes, yeah, so exactly. So it's Archivist Anonymous. <laughs> exactly. So it's great to have that. But we talk a lot about those 90s formats. Like, what are we going to do? What is the protocol? How are we all on the same page? Because there's not like a book that you can open up that tells you this is how you deal with this shit. It's like everybody's got their own tricks of the trade. 
and everybody's got maybe that one deck that is still working or there's that one guy somewhere there's you know Eddie basically in Minnesota right who uh you know is going to is going to be able to fix that shit for you or still has parts sitting around you can't even get the parts anymore and so the 90s stuff the ADATs and the DTRS and the DATs I mean that's like people need to transfer those like as soon as possible i mean it, the decks are are going they're all taking shits and the tapes are getting worse and worse and worse. And if, and if you've got, if you've got a dat tape that is even kind of a tiny bit fucked up, it's not going to play. Yeah. I mean, it's 50, 50. I mean, I've had really, really good luck with dats, knock on wood, some wood over there. But again, I've got some ADATs that I, I'm running this week and the clients like, yeah, like one of the tapes and each group of tapes just will not play back. And it's probably because they had two silver faces and a black face or like some sort of weird combination of, of ADATs trying to get up to 24 tracks. I think I've mentioned this before, maybe on a previous show I mentioned it. I had a client a bazillion years ago. We were recording in an ADAT studio that was attached to like a private school. Mm -hmm. And we recorded a, a fairly large amount of players we got it, and he said, "Okay, great. Well, let's let's meet back next weekend, and we'll we'll do some overdubs." Or it was a couple weeks weeks difference. And when I got back, he said, "Oh, hey, just to be safe, I sent those machines in to have them cared for and aligned." And I was like, mm -hmm. "Aligned? You got to be kidding me! Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's good." And I said, "I think those tapes aren't going to play." No. And sure enough, we put the tapes in. Wouldn't play. This guy yep. just about had a heart attack on the spot because. All this money he spent on musicians and me and the studio. Totally. What are you going to do? Record to tape, man. On Pro Tools. <laughs> right, right. Now, you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, now I, I'll say this too. I've had some experiences with some piece of shit Fostex reel-to-reels, those old oof. prosumer machines. And I say that with such venom in my voice because sure. those machines were awful. Truly awful. The logic would would fail. You can't get parts anymore. That compared to a Tascam, you could get a Tascam to run today. You can. I've got four of them. And yeah, you can. But, you know, they all come with their own issues because when you get into that Tascam shit, you're getting into some really obnoxious noise reduction. That's a oh, whole nother, yeah. that's a whole nother conversation is again, how do we get the noise out that we're going to end up wanting to really put back in in 20 years? We're dealing with 24 tracks of Dolby A, best right. of luck. So again, it's like the archiving world is so much more vast, I think, than a lot of folks think that it is. But yeah, I mean, with the Tascam stuff, you're getting into the DBX noise reduction. And again, it crosses over into that pro-consumer thing. And the pro-consumer stuff is where us archival engineers cringe because we're like, oh, fuck, this is going to be a Tascam thing, isn't it? What Tascam thing is this going to be? Right. And we get it. And uh, recording engineers that have been around long enough will cringe at the format. I mean, one inch 24 track, whose idea was that? Half inch 16 track. It's like, of course you need noise reduction. Jeez. But it was, a lot of records were made on that stuff. So we get a lot of those tapes. Before we started recording this interview, you and I were talking about me getting into Atmos and you said that Atmos is really becoming a, a topic, obviously, of conversation there in Nashville. A lot of people of are getting into it. How does that affect you from a restoration perspective? Is that just bringing about more multi-tracks? 
It does. That really is kind of the only way that I think it affects us. It's funny because at the height of the Atmos party in Nashville, I remember I was transferring some monoacetates and they just sounded so good. And I was like, man, this Atmos shit is fucking nuts, man. Like, (laughs) I love mono. Like, bring back mono. So I don't know all there is to know about Atmos, thank God. I leave that to people like you and my my pals that are that are into it. But everything is digital. Everything is what's the word for a, a piece of audio that you place somewhere? Oh, an object. Yes. That's what you're talking about. Our tracks are now objects. So to get a track to be an object for a band that wants to release something in Atmos that has never been released in Atmos, that's been out for 20, 30, 40 years. Well, we need those multi-tracks. And if they haven't been backed up, or maybe they were backed up during the days of Pro Tools 5 on giant brick hard drives, again, getting back into those old Pro Tools sessions, shit is a nightmare. People don't really want to fuck with that because what they're dealing with at that time is going to be 44116. So they're like, fuck that. Let's get the multis from the sessions if we can find them and they've been stored properly, so on. And let's transfer those at 96, 192. So it's going to sound way better than if you're pulling it off of an old Pro Tool session. True. And the challenge in the legacy work is the fact that the further back you go, the harder it gets because you had a two-inch machine running Simpty that was connected to a sequencer and the kick drum was coming off the sequencer and not printed on the multi-track or Oh, yeah. Some variation of that. And the the newer stuff is a breeze because it's all there. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's another conversation with Sync. So, yeah, I mean, Atmos is a great opportunity for archival engineers who are able to or or, or do run multis. And whether it's like digi multis or if it's 24-track 2-inch or 16-track 2-inch or so on or getting into that the Tascam stuff. It's just, it's more work that's coming in because labels are asking for that. Artists are asking for that. They want their original tracks at the highest possible sample rate and bit depth they can get it at so that they can remix for Atmos. Do you think that there's going to come a time when everything's just been transferred that people want to transfer? Because I mean, no. if you think about it, you got, you got Bill Smith out in LA at United. You got Jessica Thompson up here. You got Steve Rosenthal in New York. You're in Nashville. I'm sure that there's a ton of other people that I can't possibly name. Dan Johnson in LA, Audio Archiving Services, is probably top top of the game as far as the ability to transfer any, any format. You don't think it'll run out? No. I, the community outside of academia is not very big. There's, what, maybe 50 of us? Really? Maybe Damn. 100. Wow. Hundred, I mean, that are actually like doing archival stuff, like not just somebody who's got a tape machine who can like transfer that for you, like somebody who is is actually doing archival work that has a certain amount of quality control. I guess I don't know how to put that without being shitty or sounding shitty, but no, there are more assets out there. I think, and I've had conversations about this with archiving folks too, than there are engineers to move them. Most of it is lack of education and lack of knowledge. So there's a lot of assets that people don't fuck with because there's water damage. They don't even know that those things can be remediated. 
You've got things that people are finding every single day. I just, one of my most recent larger projects that I can't talk about, I wish I could, but it's a really cool old songwriter who's dead. They just found hundreds of little tiny three-inch hub consumer mono demos that were all home recorded. They're songs that nobody's ever heard, hundreds of them in an attic. Wow. And those types of things happen. I mean, there is a wealth of assets in the South that nobody has fucked with. There's stuff in Memphis. There's studios that got bought by other studios that got bought by other studios that got bought by corporations that took those assets and put them in a closet or in a safe and they don't want to fuck with them. I mean, a lot of it is the licensing, people not really knowing who owns the rights and not really wanting to deal with any of that. But also people that have a lot of assets that they didn't think had any value until now. Things that people are getting into are changing. If you're looking at like how many vinyl, like the vinyl industry, like how many vinyl records are being sold every day, mm -hmm. it's insane. I mean, re reissues have lost their minds. Like I just bought a two LP super overpriced, but like really awesome packaging, two LP, 180 gram issue of the music from Mega Man 2, like the Mega Man video game, which for me is awesome because I loved that game when I was a kid. And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to buy that. Well, I mean, somebody at some point had to go, do you know what? I bet you people would be into buying the music from these video games. Let's find where those tapes are. My point is that there's a market for that that did not exist until this climate. Right. So as those trends change and those climates change, the things that people are going to want to pay for or the things that labels are going to be doing market research <laughs> to find out what people are, will be willing to pay for yeah. are going to pull up assets that you're like, well, of course that exists somewhere. Just never thought about it. So I, I think the number of assets that exist are pretty big. Also, pretty vast. Also, you've got things that were transferred and backed up in the 90s that are no longer viable for a reissue because they're 16-bit 44.1. They weren't done very well. So those need to be re-transferred to hit the quality control level of the releases that are coming out today. And a lot of labels are asking for that too. Like, oh, well, we have these transfers that this guy did for us in the 90s. He transferred most of the catalog, but all of the mastering engineers are sending them to are not happy with them because they're like 1644.1 and they're like noisy. You know what I mean? Let me play devil's advocate here. Sure. Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill, done on right. ADATs. Totally. ADAT formats were at 48K, 16-bit. Eventually right. they went to 20-bit, but... Right. Let's just say for argument's sake, 1648, it doesn't matter. You can go back to the source tapes, even if you did get them to play, you're still stuck with that sample rate and that bit rate. You are in the digital realm, yeah. Do you think, does that really matter if, as long as you have the music? I mean, isn't that more important at the end of the day? Yeah, it is more important at the end of the day. And does it really matter? No, not always. But the person who's paying for it who doesn't know what 441 means, but when somebody tells them that 192 is better, 
okay, and they're paying for it, yeah. which is usually somebody sitting at a desk at a corporation. I mean, these days when you get into assets that are of that size, yeah, it matters to them. Right. I mean, I have clients that absolutely will not accept anything that's digitized that isn't at 192. I am not an advocate of 192. 96K sounds fucking great. Our converters that we use are great. There's not really any need for a 192, in my personal opinion, but it takes up a lot of hard drive space. Yep. How much processing are we doing? Are we doing a fuck ton of processing? Okay. Are we not? Are we just quick remaster, reissue? Are we just are we cutting this to vinyl? Like, I think there's a time and a place for 192, and not a lot of that exists in the archival world. I mean, it's going to be an unpopular opinion, mm. probably. Probably get some folks that'll have some keystrokes oh. in the comments about that one. I mean, sample rates. I mean, come on, that's that's a hot topic. It's a hot topic, you know. yeah. But basically, again, it goes back to a lot of it, which is handholding, educating. The archival world is this really, really weird, dark, mystical world. I thought that mastering was like a weird, dark, mystical world. And then I married a mastering engineer. And it's really not. I mean, it, it's dark and mystical if you haven't been around it. Right. You know, I mean, when I was a mixing engineer and I would send my shit off to mastering engineers, I'd be like, well, I hope they fix my shitty mix. You know, and then I learned like, oh, that's actually not what they do. Your mix just has to actually be good. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Good to know. You know, yeah. <laughs> like when I was younger. But archival stuff, I mean. Archival God. shit is like, it, it is like the weirdest, darkest little corner of pro audio. And it's, and it's this crazy mix of a lot of old folks. There's no ageism going on here, but like a lot of older folks who do it a very specific way. They do not, they've been doing it, doing it that way for 25 years and they, they don't really want to share any of that information with you or any of that, like, you know, it's like very secretive. You know, have you ever been to a hi-fi show? Have you ever seen like two old guys scream at each other about like the type of metal used on the end of a cable? I don't go to hi-fi shows for that Okay, yeah, reason. so like, it's like, picture that, but like in the archival world. Like, oh yeah, you. I can't believe you would bake that tape for more than twelve hours. That's absolutely unacceptable. Well, you know, it's like I've baked a tape for forty-eight hours. I'll bake the shit out. I'll bake it for a week if I get it to play. Right. So it's a lot of like trial and error and figuring out what works best for you, and then finding this really cool community of younger of younger people. And when I say younger, I mean like under the age of like. 60. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because, you know, as a, right. in my mid fifties, yeah. I'm glad to be included in that. Well, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I turned 40 this year, which was weird, but yeah, I just like, I realized, oh, there's not a lot of information. I mean, I can like go and look up somebody's website where they posted something that, you know, we're all picking little things from, from the history of archival. And there's a lot of people that have given to that. Like we're pulling things from shit that like old school RCA cats used to do. We're pulling things like Wendy Carlos has like a whole website of how to restore a tape, how to clean a tape. So it's like this vast amount of information over the years that's changed because the medium is getting older. Like, yeah, maybe in 1980 or 90, you only needed to bake a tape for 12 hours. Well, now 
it needs a little more work. So there's just not like a place you can go to get the information. There's not like a YouTube video. Okay. So that said, what about the younger listener who's listening to us talk right now? And they're thinking, wow, that sounds really cool. And right up my alley. How do I get into that? That's an awesome question. And that is something that us as an archival community are trying to provide and those, those types of opportunities. So there's AES always. And what we're trying to do with the AES stuff is to bring more topics in that are more discussion oriented and less tech oriented. Like it's one thing to get up and talk about very white paper sort of thing about azimuth for like two hours. Young people don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. What we need is more of a community that's discussing the actual art and the act of working with physical mediums and working with tape machines. So I think it starts in education. We're trying to get together some cool possible educational things. I know there's some tape camps and stuff out here that touch a little bit on that. But what's cool if you're young and you want to get into this, now is the time because you've got people who are like, okay, we don't really want to fuck around with the old hat and we love what academia is doing, but it doesn't really apply to us. So we need to band together and figure out how to do all this shit and save all of these old recordings like as a community. And that's super powerful. And to have young people that are interested in that, they can jump on to any of the AES stuff that we're into or any of the stuff that we do that's like on Zoom, if it's public, which we're trying to do more of, or just reach out to us. You know, I mean, I get emails from folks all the time that are just like, how do I get into this? Okay, cool. You know how to use a tape machine? Like, let's chat about it. It seems like it, it's absolutely critical. Time is of the essence as far as absolutely. I'm concerned because oh, yeah. you got to bring newer blood in because time's not stopping. And all those tapes, they're just degrading as we're sitting here talking. Well, the tapes are degrading as we're talking. The decks are degrading as we're talking. And the one thing that's degrading that's the most important is the knowledge. Right. That's degrading. Our line of work is directly influenced by and related to how well our tape machines are running, period. If my deck is not at 100 fucking percent, yeah. then I am not going to be able to do my job correctly or to the level of quality control that I want to. Everything has to be working as well as it possibly can, especially in multis. I have got 24 problems when I'm setting up a multi-track <laughs> and they all have to not be a problem. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, there's a joke in there somewhere. Oh, but, there's a Jay-Z um, song in there somewhere. There is. But the issue is we're working with decks with Ampex 102s and 104s. We're working with Studer's 827s, hopefully not 800s, God forbid, but A80s. Some of us are using MCIs. Some of us are using Ataris. Some of us have to fucking deal with Tascam shit every day. I mean, what we need is these guys who are retiring so fast, like birds falling out of trees or sadly passing away with all of that knowledge. Like we need Studer techs, John French, without whom I don't even know that we would have a viable archiving community 
anywhere on the planet. I mean, anywhere in the United States. And this is a huge shout out to John French, uh, JRF. He's been building custom head stacks. He's been relapping heads. He is the guy who knows how to do that shit. And him and his wife, they're so lovely. They've been running that business for so many years and they're in their 80s, I think. Yeah. Like we're all having a silent panic attack. Like what happens when John retires? Holy shit. Like, what are we going to do? Like, oh my God, we got to find heads. Like we got to, <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, we're freaking out because that knowledge is degrading. That knowledge is dying. We don't have text to fix studers. We don't have people to build head stacks. We just don't have it. Well, I mean, don't you think like, God forbid this were to happen and, and I'm going to knock on, you know, whatever surface I can here to hope that this doesn't happen. So let's say John French dies tomorrow. I mean, don't you think that with the demand, somebody could come forward who's smart, could figure oh, it out? I've got a, a guy, his name's Tom. He's awesome. He runs a, a business in Florida. Amp Services, AMP hmm. Services in Florida. Tom, awesome guy. Excellent job. He does all my, my head work, my relapping for my stereo stuff. And he's great, but that's one guy. And, and he's very, very good. And I'm thinking hopefully in X amount of years, he'll be that mythical John French maybe figure. But some of these guys have these talents that are, are very specific to them. Yeah. And they're too busy and they're tired and they don't really have the time to pass that on. Plus, like, I don't know if anybody's knocking on John's door or like, teach me how to do this. Right. So what we need is young people to get more into the tech side of stuff with these old decks. And we need the old guys to be willing to teach the young guys and gals. Yeah. We need the old people to be open to the young people wanting to learn that kind of stuff. Otherwise it dies with them. And then, and then what? Like I've got a blackface ADAT that still runs. And every time I turn it on, I'm like, keep going. All right, here we go. <laughs> I know you got it in you. And I don't know how or why it, when I hit play, it sounds like it doesn't sound good, but it runs perfectly beautifully. Everything's timing's great. Heads are great. No issues. I mean, it's the loudest piece of gear I, I have. But at some point, those tapes that will only play back on that blackface, because there are some, it's like, fuck, I find another blackface. Yeah, get on eBay. I mean, God, got to hit all those all those pawn shops right. in Nashville. Well, we're about out of time. It seems that you have really settled in and you found your your home in the world of archiving and restoration. And you seem at peace with it when... I'm sure that there was a little bit of an identity crisis. Like, oh my totally. God, I'm not going to be recording anymore. Oh, there's, I still have that identity crisis every single day. Every day I wake up and I'm like, what? The well, first of all, I look out the window and I see a fuck ton of trees and I'm like, where am I? Oh, right. I'm in Nashville. That's right. Okay. And yeah. And I'm like, what am I doing? Oh yeah. I'm transferring well, these weird tapes, not making a ton, ton of money, but- I do really, really love the work. It's a totally different world. It feels right to be doing it. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. I think that you know you do something for a really long time. The hardest part is is to still be excited about it. Well, beyond that, I mean, what I recognize in you is that you care and you're trying to do the best you can because obviously you have an obligation 
to the people you work with, the clients, to not not care? Well, the obligation, you're obligated to the asset. I mean, hopefully everyone's making money in the process and the clients are happy and your bosses are happy and hopefully you can eat at the end of the week or month. But right. when you get an asset that is something that is dear, I mean, it's released now, so I think I can talk about it. And I did a mono acetate of the Dixie Cups. I saw your post. Chapel of Love. And that record for me is such a huge, I love, absolutely love that record. I loved that record when I was a kid, growing up listening to music and sort of learning more about music and getting into recording and then appreciating it for a whole nother reason. Getting that master and transferring that and trying to get the very, very best transfer of that possible. A, it's never going to sound that good. It's as good as it's ever going to sound. You're playing it directly off the tape deck out of your speakers. That's how it sounded in 1964 or whatever. You know what I mean? I think mm -hmm. it's 64. I could be wrong. But when you have an asset like that, that is meaningful, not only to you, but to the world musically, it's such a pleasure to be the person to facilitate that, to care for that. So the obligation is to save that recording because it's an important piece of music, whether it's the Dixie Cups or it's like, you know, somebody's grandpa talking about World War II on an oral history thing that they found in their garage. I mean, that is just as important to that person as that Dixie Cups record is to me, right? So it's really about the respect and, and, and honoring the, the asset, I think, whatever's on that medium. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm a record collector. I love that tactile experience. And I think if more young folks who are into music, who had a little bit of, hopefully a little bit of education in, in the analog realm, have that same feeling about, records in general, like physical things, this might be a really, really cool part of the industry for them to get into. I want to add to this, since you are now part of Infrasonic, you join, I don't know, for some reason I've interviewed so many Infrasonic people. I've had Pete, Piper, Daniel, Dave, Nick. Awesome. On, and now we can officially add you to that list because you're an Infrasonic person. But really good to see you and really good to catch up because, you know, COVID. Yeah, man. I haven't seen you or talked to you in ages. So totally. this is really fun for me to see what you're doing and and hear about it. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me, man. This has been great. It's it's fun to talk about this weird niche kind of stuff. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, you take care. Thanks, Matt. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Catherine Veracoli here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Just a reminder to head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips, and you can download a free PDF. It is called 
15 tips to help you survive as an audio professional. And they are chunks of interviews that I've pulled from uh, Jack and Dino, Eric Valentine, Andrew Sheps, and Steve Albini. And those are some pretty cool ideas that they have in there. So I hope you can read that and I hope it will benefit you. So check it out. Workingclassaudio.com slash 15 tips. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes, of course, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith with the magical voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me a message, of course. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>